It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, we are getting more information about President Trump's proposal to potentially allow companies to report earnings every six months rather than quarterly uh, on a quarterly basis. President Trump says the idea comes from outgoing PepsiCo chief executive Indra Nooyi, who attended last week's Bedminster Business Dinner. Uh, so that is where the idea came from. Joining me now, I'm very pleased to say, is Arthur Levitt. He is the former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and I believe the longest serving ever SEC chair. Uh, he also is a current member of the board at Bloomberg L. He also is an advisor to the Promontory Financial Group. Arthur, thank you so much for being with me today. What was your reaction to President Trump's tweet this morning about uh, allowing companies to report every six months? I don't like it. I think that investors have much better results when they're better informed, not less than. Uh, U.S. capital markets, with their quarterly reporting, have generated higher returns, and as a result, attracted a lot more capital than those international capital markets with semi-annual reporting. Now, in the instance of Enron, they reported serious problems in the third quarter of 2001 in that earning call on 10Q, and they filed for bankruptcy the first week of December in 2002. With semi-annual reporting, investors wouldn't have received the bad news from October until 2002, by which time the company was broke. Otherwise, you could say, you know, it it just doesn't doesn't make sense. So, coming so, coming from your background at the oh, go ahead, Arthur. Coming from your background at the SEC, I'm wondering what the process would be like that it could potentially undergo in order to make this happen. I mean, how long would a study like this take, and and could they just sort of implement this in in, in the near term? I think the study is likely to take at least six months, and I don't believe they could do this virtually overnight. Uh, I think this is a very hot-button issue, and I think it will raise a lot of attention, not just in corporate America, but in academia, which is very concerned about 
how information gets to the public and when they can act on it. Do you think that if we did move to a six-month reporting period, that U.S. markets would become less liquid? Yes. Uh, I think that they would become less liquid, but more important than that, uh, we would have less information on which to base decisions. And I think a market without information is not as not as nearly as liquid or as good as a market where information is readily available on a regular basis. I have to think that some people believe that this was a good thing, that this would reduce short-termism among the C-suite executives and that people would be looking more longer-term for business strategies that make sense. What do you say to that? Because there are even some investors who think that this would be better for them over the long term. I think from the perspective of business, it would be less costly to relax these standards. But I honestly believe that the best capital markets are the ones which are the most often, report the most frequently. And the argument for more information for individual investors trumps the argument that providing this information is costly to American business. When you were the SEC chair, did a lot of executives petition you to make this change? No, uh, they did not. I think there is um, always a certain amount of tension between business and regulation, and that certainly existed. But uh, I was not pressured extensively in connection with this change. I'm curious to know whether you think that the pendulum has swung too far toward deregulating things or how much further it would have to swing before you get concerned uh, that we're sowing the seeds for another problem? I don't think there's a specific moment that you can point to, but clearly deregulation is in the air, and that's not bad. I think the pendulum does shift, as you say, but I think we've rolled back a number of things. We've made it Uh, easier for business in a number of ways in terms of regulatory context. But I think going much further than we are now, we would do that at the expense of investor interest. And the greatest danger to our capital markets is lack of transparency insofar as investors are concerned. That's why I think we can go so far and really not go any further. Just a real quick here. I'm curious, are you worried about SEC independence here? I haven't thought of that. I think that uh, agencies are independent, have been independent, and I think any effort to change that would be terrible for our markets. I don't regard this as an urgent threat at this point in time. And a lot of it depends on who's running the commission. And the present SEC chair is mindful of those risks. Yeah. And I think is unlikely to move in that direction. 
Arthur Lovett, thank you so much for taking the time. Always wonderful hearing your insights, especially on an issue uh, so close to your experiences. Arthur Lovett is former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, current member of the board of Bloomberg LP, as well as an advisor to the Promontory Financial Group. Dominating this otherwise relatively quiet Friday has been the president's tweet respecting uh, the SEC and how it requires companies to report their earnings. Should we be moving to a six-month schedule rather than a quarterly one. I should just note the White House just released a statement saying the president is interested in examining this issue on whether short-term earnings reporting requirements for public companies reduce incentives for them to engage in long-term investing in the United States. This is part of the administration's ongoing regulatory reform efforts that aim to ensure that the U.S. economy remains the most productive in the world. Joining me now, Hans Olsen, Chief Investment Officer at Fiduciary Trust, which oversees about $78 billion dollars. It is based in Boston. Hans joins me today in a very sweaty and warm New York City in our 1130 studios. Hans, thank you so much for being here. What do you think of this idea of six-month uh, reporting? Six-month reporting? Well, you know, it's it's kind of moving, uh, at least in the same direction uh, that the Europeans have moved in. Uh, they were on a six-month uh, um, um, schedule, and I think they went to three and then back to six. And the UK, I think, has done the, similarly the same thing. You know, at, at the end of the day, it's probably uh, less meaningful for equity investors than it is for bond investors. Um, um, that said, if we went to six months, wouldn't be the end of the world. But I do think that in the interest of transparency, right, um, more information is better than less information. And I think this this whole notion of quarterly capitalism, as the CEO of Unilever put it, um, is is of um, CEOs' own making. We get into the earnings season. They've released. They have analyst conference calls. We go through the Kabuki theater of of analysts calling in, congratulating the CEOs in a good quarter, and and basically they're reading from the press release, right? Yeah. Um, I think a better way, right, to relieve some of the uh, the emphasis around quarterly capitalism is, is to release the numbers on a quarterly quarterly basis, but only do a semi annual deep dive on the operations of the company. So yeah. you keep the transparency and um, uh, and you perhaps uh, lessen this emphasis on quarter to quarter. Hans, I think it's really interesting what you just said about this mattering more for bond investors than stock investors. And I think that this really goes to the heart of the short-termism versus long-termism debate uh, that this really highlights, which is perhaps companies would be incentivized to make better longer-term decisions if they didn't have to meet these sort of quarterly hurdles. But for a bond investor, the key is are you guys losing money? Are you getting off track to the point where you're not going to be able to pay me back? Right. And so do you think that for equity investors, six-month reporting would actually increase longer-termism thought among corporate executives, or do you think it would just be less transparency, you know, full stop? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, at the end of the day, CEO is going to be compensated on his or her um, uh, stock price, right? And so, um, you know, from and that's on a year-to-year basis. So if you are really talking about long-term, you're talking three to five years uh, or, or more, you know, a business cycle, that's just too long for, for most investors yeah. um, to, to, for you to be able to evaluate a, a company's standing or not. So I think this is uh, much to do about nothing, really. Yeah.
All right. Well, let's move uh, on to some things that are ado about something. Uh, I do want to just let people know that there is a headline crossing. The Business Insider is now reporting that Turkey is preparing to release the imprisoned U.S. pastor. This, of course, at the heart of the dispute between the U.S. and Turkey, with the U.S. threatening additional sanctions on Turkey unless they release this pastor. So this might be a softening of that issue. Hans, come on in here because you noted that you are underweight emerging markets. Mm. And I'm wondering how much you see Turkey as an idiosyncratic case and how much you see it as emblematic of broader weakness that is going to be felt increasingly across the developing markets. So I think Turkey's a unique case. And and, and this the issue of the pastor aside, uh, Turkey's problems is an old problem uh, that uh, is very familiar to emerging markets where you get a country that's running a large current account deficit uh, that, that is financing its spending from foreign sources and depending upon exchange rates and they're engaging in in policies that are uh, are not prudent over time and then finally you start messing around with the, the country central bank and you have the the cocktail for disaster and that's essentially what's played out in Turkey the the uh, issue with the pastor was a secondary but perhaps exacerbating case but it perhaps is moving in the right direction but Turkey's problems isn't going to be cured by the release of this uh, of this pastor. Yeah. It's really about maintaining the independence of the central bank, getting a handle on their current account deficits and and the like. Within a broader perspective, though, Lisa, the the emerging market issue is is we're underweight, and we're underweight because the notion that when you start to have a price of money here in the United States, yeah. uh, and people have a choice, where where when we had negative real rates and really quite negative real rates on 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 uh, cash money got pushed into motion it was looking for a return and it had to go increasingly to places that it normally wouldn't go right emerging market debt emerging market equities and the like for a return now that we're getting a re- you know a re- return on cash there's starting to be uh, a choice and and as the dollar goes up and as interest rates go up which reinforces the currency you know, uh, the attractiveness of emerging markets becomes somewhat suspect. Right. I do want to also talk about the attractiveness of risk assets in the U.S. And you noted that you've been reducing high yield exposure in some of your portfolios. I would love to get your perspective on where, how, why. Yeah, yeah. So we've been we've been essentially uh, moving to eliminate our high yield exposure. All of uh, it. All of it. How big was it? Uh, it was about three, four percent of the portfolio. Three or four percent. Yeah, three to four percent of portfolio. Okay. So, so taking that out, and the reason that we're doing it is that we've seen a progressively deteriorating um, backdrop for um, the underwriting standards for high yield, whether it be bonds or loans. So, if you look at the number of covenant light loans, you look at the valuations spreads that have come to market, um, the protections that are normally afforded an investor has been have been systematically eroded um, as as. People have sought for yield uh, and try to protect against rising interest rates. What that doesn't do is protect against the next part of the business cycle when you know you go into recession and the default rates start to rise. You know, it was interesting. You, you noted before the segment that you've reduced all your or gotten rid of all of your leveraged loan exposure, and yeah. in part this has to do with the weakening underwriting standards. And we were talking about this Moody's report showing that recoveries in the next downturn for leveraged loans will be sixty-one percent from seventy. Historically, and I'm just wondering, you know, why do you find it important to get rid of things now 
before the cycle is turning? And just I'll give you about 30, 40 seconds. Sure, that's a good question. Uh, position of strength. You do it uh, when uh, the prices are good. You do it ahead of the curve. And when, you're act- when you do it when the information's out there, when you're starting to suffer the adversity, it's too late because the prices move too quickly. As we, you know, and, and when you go looking for bids in this market, it'll be hard to find them. So we're doing it ahead of the curve. Interesting. So even if we're, I don't know, 18 months out, now is the time in your view. Hans Olsen, a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for coming in. Hans Olsen, Chief Investment Officer at Fiduciary Trust, based in Boston, but he joins us here in our 1130 studios. I do want to note that President Trump is uh, talking to reporters, and we will take those uh, comments to you when we get them. He's talking about everything from Paul Manafort to John Brennan. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. housing market in the U.S. has seen some signs of stress this year. I'm looking at an index of home builder shares in the S&P 500 down nearly 18 percent so far this year. The question is here, does this mark a prolonged takedown of the U.S. housing market or is this a blip to kind of create a more even ground for people who to afford properties? Joining us now to talk about this is Aaron Tarasis, Economic Research Director for Zillow. Aaron, I'm really glad that you're joining us today because this has been sort of an underlying theme for a lot of people, especially if they're bearish in the economy. They say, look at the home builders. So what's going on? I mean, do you see that the weakness that uh, has been observed recently is a symptom of some kind of deeper woe that will be expressed uh, throughout the rest of the year? You're, you're certainly right to point out that housing data have been coming in a little bit weaker than expected. You look at home sales, uh, housing starts, home value appreciation, although it's been very strong, it's starting to slow down. Uh, we recently produced some data showing that listings with a price cut, you're seeing a lot more price cuts out there on the market. That said, it's important to put this in context. The housing market has been, first of all, leading the economic recovery. It was one of the first sectors to kind of to start showing strength. And second of all, it's been very strong the past few years. Um, abnormally strong. We saw the, a rebound in young adult home ownership. Millennials in particular have been out in force buying homes. And so I think in somewhat, some respect, what we're starting to see is a, more of a normalization. Things are kind of coming back to a more normal pace, not the frenetic, hectic pace of the past two years. Um, but still, it's, it's still very much of a seller's market. So uh, you noted in your recent report that about 14% of all listings across the U.S. had a price cut in June. That's up from a recent low of uh, less than 12% near the end of 2016. So you are seeing people have to realize, wow, if I really want to sell this home, I have to ask for less. I'm just wondering where you're seeing the biggest price cuts. That, that, that's a great point because so much of this story is where it's happening. Uh, first of all, it, it's happening primarily at the top of the market. If you look at that expensive third of, of the housing market, that's where you see the biggest jump in, in price cuts and already kind of more price cuts. We know that's um, a subset of the market that buyers are, are already being tested at their limits. Um, also, I think the second important, important thing to keep in mind here is when you look at the size of the price cut, 
it's actually been pretty stable. You know, the typical price cut is around 2 to 3%. What that tells me is that some of these price cuts that we're seeing has actually been sellers being rather aggressive in their in their listing strategy and then just testing what the market can tolerate. So, you know, they say the market's so hot, so fast moving, you know, might as well list aggressively, see if I get that that dream price. One thing I'm wondering, especially as you talk about the high-end homes seeing the biggest price declines, how much is this tied to the tax policies and places like New York, New Jersey, Connecticut that are typically high-tax states seeing price reductions in the homes due to some of the changes that don't allow some deductions? That, that's a great point. You know, I, I think kind of there's two forces that have been squeezing that high end um, on the demand side. You, you talked about the changes in the tax structure, particularly changes in that state and local tax deduction. There, you know, we capped it, uh, that deduction at ten thousand dollars starting this year uh, for most of these very high end communities. Um, that's not even going to cover local property taxes. And you know, we, it's something we've been watching in the past few years, past few months. And we are starting to see a little bit of a significant effect um, of a, a larger slowdown in places that rely more on that uh, state and local tax deduction. Obviously, the second factor is interest rates. Interest rates are creeping upward. That matters more at that high price point. One thing that I found interesting in a recent report about household debt by the government it looked like people were actually incurring a uh, significant increase in mortgage debt recently, which kind of flies against the theory that rising interest rates would dampen the demand for mortgages. What do you make of that, especially since it is toward higher quality borrowers? This is not necessarily another subprime uh, mortgage boom, just to be very clear. That, that, that's absolutely right. You know, The people who have been um, borrowing tend to be high credit borrowers, people with stable incomes, documentable incomes. I think two factors are driving that increase in, in debt outstanding. One, as I talked about a moment ago, young adults, first-time home buyers have been out in force the past two years. They're acquiring mortgage debt for the first time, often mortgage debt in uh, pricey markets where we know that there has been a booming jobs, uh, you know, employment situation. Um, so they're able to kind of buy homes, but very pricey homes at that. I think the second part of that uh, rising debt um, is is borrowing, people borrowing against their homes. Home values have recovered very strongly from the bottom of the market in 2012. And so people are starting to feel comfortable enough to borrow a little bit against their home, perhaps to do renovations, um, perhaps, you know, to fund any other, um, you know, uh, education so forth. Uh. So return of the reverse mortgage. Just real quick here, Aaron, I'm curious to know, a year from now, your best guess, do you think that prices on U.S. homes will have gone up? I think uh, prices will certainly have gone up. They will have gone up at a slower pace than, than they went up the past year. You think about nationwide over the past year, we've seen home value appreciation up about 8%. I think we'll go down to about 6 7%. So slower than it's been, but still positive. Aaron Tarazas, thank you so much for joining us. Really interesting. Aaron Tarazas is Economic Research Director for Zillow. And uh, yeah, those home builders have been really beaten up this year, uh, down nearly 18%. Of course, the home builders have also been hit by higher lumber prices and other uh, higher costs tied to labor. So there could be some other issues there, but certainly a big wild card here. A lot of people looking at the uh, housing market as a possible leading indicator, though, as Aaron just said, it is actually led the market up. So perhaps it's just softening uh, to keep up pace with everything else. Cora
corporate divorce court can be a bitter place. Joining us now is Matthew Schettenhelm. He's media litigation analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He has had his hands full recently with a number of different issues, but in particular, the Tribune versus Sinclair battle. They obviously were going to get married. Not so. This was because the Federal Communications Commission chair, Ajit Pai, for all intents and purposes, put the kibosh on this tie up. Matthew, thank you so much for being with me. I'm curious from your perspective, you know, what's at stake going forward between these two companies? How much money is on the line and what needs to happen now to sort of finish out this chapter of would be love? Uh, yes, Lisa. So it, it has been kind of an unfortunate saga for, for both of these companies over, over the past year. This was a deal that was announced in uh, uh, May of 2017. The companies had hoped to uh, approve, win approval of their merger you know, early uh, this year, and that just never happened. And it all culminated, as you said, last week uh, with uh, Tribune saying, enough is enough. We're going to walk away from this deal. And at the same time, Time, uh, we're going to commence a lawsuit in in the Delaware Court of Chancery against Sinclair uh, for our damages and in, in what you put us through for the past year. And in, as part of that, they said, "Hey, we we would also like to get one billion dollars in in premium that have that's been lost to our shareholders as as a result of this." So it's the it's not the end of the story yet uh, between these two. How did Sinclair wrong Tribune Media Company from so, Tribune's perspective? So yeah, so the you know it's it's certainly not a uh, uh, a breach of contract just to have a deal go bad. Uh, Tribune says that Sinclair. Uh, acted beyond the bounds of reasonableness here. And it had a duty in its contract. It committed to to Tribune to take reasonable best efforts to to make this deal happen, in, including in working with the two regulators involved here, the Department of Justice and the Federal Communications Commission. And as part of that, uh, Sinclair even had committed that said, we'll divest stations in 10 markets that are that are most likely to, to, to cause concerns. They said that in the agreement. What Tribune says is that Sinclair then, when it actually got in negotiations with those regulators, sort of pulled back on that and, and said, and consistently said, well, we don't actually want to divest more than, you know, maybe three or four stations of those 10. And according to Tribune, uh, by acting out of its own self-interest uh, and, and, and really kind of going back on its own word and its contract, uh, the, the allegation is that Sinclair breached its contract and, and, and led to, to ulti- the ultimate demise of the deal. This is really interesting, and perhaps it's not as much on people's radar as it should be, because if Sinclair were forced to pay Tribune $1 billion, that could be actually a significant loss for Sinclair and a significant gain for Tribune, which has kind of had a rocky rocky bunch of years now. Right, right. And and so so the way I see it, though, and I, I think Tribune may have some merit to to its lawsuit, uh, generally speaking, that the idea that that perhaps Sinclair went a little bit beyond what was reasonable under the terms. I think I think Tribune has a decent shot to to sway the court on on that basis. It's going to take some some proof and it's going to take some time. But I think there's there's a valid chance. The idea that it can recover a billion dollars in premium for its shareholders is is a longer shot, though. 
uh, its shareholders aren't uh, named in the contract. We're suing under a contract here, and they're not named as beneficiaries under the contract. And at uh. least, and at least one court has has in in a similar case said, "Now, sorry, you, we, you know, we, we, we're, this is about a contract. You, the company, can recover damages because you were promised something. Shareholders weren't, and so I think Tribune." Uh, it's it's throwing that number out there. It's in its complaint. It's saying it's going after that shareholder premium. I'm not so convinced that that that's really likely here. So it might just pad the bonuses of the executives and nothing more. <laughs> right, and I mean it, it helps with 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 settlement talks. This, yeah. It's a point of Delaware law that isn't completely settled, and so the, it's not you know frivolous to make the claim, and and it will help them in in negotiations. And you know maybe settlement is where this ultimately goes, and this might help in 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 that effort. You know, I have to say you have one of the most interesting jobs of the moment because there have been so many tie-ups among big media companies, and everybody's trying to get ahead of the next wave of new media. And while we're talking about FCC Chair Ajit Pai, uh, certainly we haven't really been focused, but probably should be, on all of the net neutrality rules and the fact that the agency has been examining possibly rolling back the Obama-era regulations. Has there been any progress made on that front? Yeah. So, I mean, the the the, the Republican-controlled FCC is well on its way to do Doing that, in fact, it it, it enacted uh, an order to undo the the 2015 net neutrality regulations, and that has actually taken effect now. Where we are now, this is a story that here in D.C. will will not go away, uh, and and it, there's no sign that it's going away anytime soon. Because now, what what you have is is the next litigation in that front. Uh, where the net neutrality supporters are suing the Federal Communications Commission to say, no, you you can't undo those rules. Uh, that that was an unlawful action. That's going that won't be decided this year. That will take until sometime next year. Could even go to the Supreme Court after that. And then you look at, hey, does the FCC change hands in 2020? Do we go back to a Democrat-controlled FCC, and do we do this all over again? In other words, net neutrality isn't going away anytime soon. Correct. The technicality, the technical requirement for it technically isn't on the books right now. Uh, you know, in theory, Comcast and Charter and the ISPs could go ahead and, and, and violate net neutrality, you know, as much as they'd like because there are no rules there. But the, the whole idea that this is still hanging out there is itself a form of a check, I think, on the companies. And the, it sort of puts them on their best behavior. If they, if they started to be real egregious in their traffic management, I think you could, you, could, you know, you, there's a real threat of, of, of regulation and Congress stepping in with, with something that the companies wouldn't like. So net neutrality technically isn't required, but practically speaking, I think it will be for, for, for some time. Just real quick, uh, can you just give us a real quick primer? on net neutrality, just in case anyone's listening to this and saying, yeah. it sounds great, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's one of those things, you know, you, you have to explain every time. And it's just the basic idea that that even though the internet service providers, Comcast, Charter, and, and your phone companies, even though they own the network, that doesn't mean they get to control all the traffic or how it runs over it. The idea is that they should treat the network as an open platform, like an open highway that anyone can get on. And so they shouldn't be able to, to set fees to, to prioritize, you know, Facebook over Netflix. Netflix or, you know, the next Netflix doesn't doesn't need to get special permission from Comcast in order to create the next great media company. It should be an open platform. And uh, but but the the companies, ISPs push back and say, look, we invest billions of dollars to build these networks. And so we should be able to control them. 
Thank you so much for being with us. Again, I think you have probably one of the most fascinating jobs at this moment of dramatic transformation in the media industry. Matthew Sheddenhelm, he is media litigation analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.